Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Passing Dimes. As always, we're really excited for this week's guest. Uh, I'm your host for this uh, interim uh, weekly interview, and, uh, and that's because we're interviewing the uh, founder of Passing Dimes. We have Josh Nickel here. Uh, Josh has a, an incredible background of accolades, especially on the coaching side. Coach of various clubs, such as Side. He's been involved on the provincial teams for both indoor and beach. Uh, he had some dabble in the college field, plenty of grassroots programs, helping out with high schools, and most recently just named to Volleyball Canada's national beach team, Next Gen Interim Head Coach. So, huge round of applause here for Josh Nickel. <laughs> You're such a natural, and thank you so much for doing this, and yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. I mean, I feel like we, all the, all your fans are spending so much time listening to you dig into other people about their volleyball journey and and kind of dive into their past that I feel like there's got to be a lot of them out there that are wondering, you know what, I want to know more about Josh Nichols. So uh, with the with the recent uh, national role announcement, I figured why not a great time to, to get you on the show and have someone ask you questions and start to you tell your story about volleyball and what it means to you. Well, this just kind of confirms while Dallas and I wanted to start the show, we think there's so many amazing people in the volleyball community and they, they should have a voice. And I mean, I was comfortable being on the other side of this and just asking them questions, but it just shows that there's there's good guys in the community like you that were like, why not we why don't we flip it and make you talk for a while? And I, I got to be honest, I was uncomfortable with the idea, but I've put enough people on this side that uh, I thought it was my turn and it was fair. And I think you're the perfect guy to do it too. Yeah, you owed it. Well, one thing I've noticed from like actually just listening to a lot of your stories is uh, really no matter who's on and, and who you're talking to, everyone's always got some sort of interesting story. So I'm really excited to dive in and, and hear yours here, Josh. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, I really like our show that we can have like Todd Rogers or TJ Sanders, Gavin Smith, Sarah Pavin, like we can have some absolute studs and we'll get similar amount of downloads for somebody who's like not as star studded. So hopefully my numbers are comparable to them or even your episode, right? <laughs> I, I have no doubt. So I, uh, my thought was let's Quentin Tarantino this episode a little bit. So we started with kind of the most recent news with uh, the announcement from uh, Volleyball Canada about your next-gen interim head coach role. But let's uh, let's rewind way, way, way back to kind of see uh, the path that it took for you to get there. So, like, where did volleyball start for you? What was your first dabble in it? Was it love at first sight? Or did it take some time for you to really uh, get into the game and appreciate it? I think it took me a long time to see what the level actually was. Like I, I grew up in Brussels, Ontario, which for our listeners is like a town. It might be 800 people in Midwestern Ontario. And it was 
it was the kind of community where you just played every sport. So you played volleyball, you played basketball, you played soccer, like you played hockey, like absolutely everything. So you never really identified as like, oh, I'm a basketball player. It was just whatever was in season. And I had a really good public school coach and I was like tall and lanky. So obviously you get attracted by the things you're you're good at. So when I went to yeah, high I think, school, uh, I think all the <laughs> listeners can uh, relate to that tall and lanky being recruited <laughs> to a volleyball team. So, so public school volleyball was fun. And then when you get to high school, like you, you want to play and obviously high school is more organized, more athletic. And, and I had an awesome coach, uh, Mr. Classen at Effie Medill. And he decided when he was going to coach the junior boys team, he wasn't going to cut anybody, which was good because I was probably the 16th player on a 12 man roster. Like I was definitely like a, a body in the yeah. gym, but uh, because we had some, some vets, like some, some older guys that were really good guys and the coach was a good guy. Like, I fell in love with volleyball and, and I'm sure like most people as your skills improve and so how you start to understand some of the tactics in volleyball because you can't watch it on TV you can't like have a Don Cherry breaking it down for you like once I started to understand the game and I got like better at it I just I fell in love I really love our sport I think it's it's so fun it's so dynamic it's so tactical that like it was more appealing to me than a lot of the other sports I grew up playing. Oh, wow. Thanks for that. So, I mean, I'm not a geography whiz, so I'm really not too familiar with Brussels, but what would be like the high school in that area that you go to? And, uh, and if you were playing in that area today, what's the kind of the club or clubs, uh, in the area that most players would be attending? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I kind of skipped over that. So in Brussels, because we were so small, we would, uh, commute to high school, which is about, I don't know, maybe a half hour, uh, to Wingham, Ontario, where Effie Medill Secondary School was. And I think if you were to count it up, Effie Medill probably houses like maybe between eight to 12 towns where like you just get busted and like that's the spot. So obviously Wingham's like a bigger center in our area, but like it's it's the surrounding area high school. So definitely would have played there with the people from like all over like Teeswater, Lucknow, Wingham. Like it, it just has like a pretty big catchment area. And then the club team, uh, I actually went to Godridge and played for the Huron Tsunami and listeners of the show, friends of the show will recognize Chris Lawson uh, he was actually a high school I coach. Say, I feel like that was his area. Yeah, definitely. So he was the starter of the here in Tsunami because Goddard had a really competitive high school program when he was there. And and because, again, a small community, the catchment area. So I played for the here in Tsunami and I, I was looking into this before the show. There was three guys from my high school, four guys from Goddard, three guys commuted from Chesley. There was one guy from like Kincardine. So it wasn't like... I don't know, you're a London guy and you play with just London guys. This was like four or five communities coming together to make one team of like 10 or 11 guys. Yeah, one of those areas where everyone commutes. That's uh, that's interesting. And and with that, did you find like there was any uh, high school rivalries bleeding over onto the club team or? Uh, obviously, like in your league, you have some rivalries. So like, uh, I don't know if I ever beat Goddard, to be honest, but it was nice to be on the club team because it was just one of those things where you hated playing against them and you kind of build up these rivalries in your mind. But as soon as you're on the same team, it's like, Oh, they're actually really good guys. And I'm going to be friends with them. Like it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic that way. And then for us being small town guys, it was always fun to go to like bigger tournaments uh, and you play against like the, the teams that you've heard of. Right. So if we were ever at a tournament and like, Oak Ridge or Saunders was there or Chatham Kent like schools that you like heard of the mystique or I remember the first time I played against Graydon Ainsworth like just kind of seeing what guys who took volleyball serious and were definitely going to play at like the university or maybe the national team level that was always kind of like a thrill as a small town guy to see like how far the gap was and how good some people are at our sport. Yeah thanks for sharing that and and who are your coaches with that here on Tsunami? Did you ever get uh, any early exposure with Chris Lawson or who were kind of the big names that just kind of 
grew your love of this sport. I think that was kind of the cool thing that maybe influenced my career a little bit is Chris Lawson was like the technical director and he would pop in every once in a while. And obviously all the players knew Chris was good. So if he said something like you were going to do it, but at the same time, the the head coach was my head coach at, at high school, Audrey Boss. And she's kind of well known at Madawaska and she's done some regional programs and stuff. But that's how like my club team started was she was uh, working with region three and one of the Goddard guys was just talking at lunch, being like, oh, I wish I could play club volleyball. We don't have enough guys. And she's like, oh, like, I can get some guys. Like, Madilla's a couple guys. And I'll talk to uh, her friend, Barry Mutri and Chesley, and they have guys. Like, our our club team came together, not because the athletes were driving it, but we had some really cool coaches who networked a little bit for us. So, uh, Audrey was definitely a big influence in getting club volleyball because there was just nothing in Wingham or that area. And as an athlete, I didn't even know what club volleyball was until she asked me if I was interested in playing. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a lot of our coaches out there can attest to the recruiting that goes into coaching as well. Um, so was this, uh, Audrey, did you have her your entire club se- uh, club career or did you kind of bounce across a few different coaches as you were growing up through the OVA system? So I really only played one year of club because uh, in that era, I think it was, there wasn't like the in-between ages groups, like there wasn't 15 and 17. So I played 18U. Uh, and then didn't play again next year. A lot of our guys cycled out, so I didn't play, but I still practice with a different team. I don't know if you know who Scott Coulthard is. He's a great guy. He played at Nipissing from that area where he played a year, so I got to be like a practice player on that squad, but I was too old to play for them. But yeah, I only got one year of OVA club experience and and loved it, Um, but that was really the only thing. And then I started getting into coaching right around that time as well where I wasn't one of these lucky guys who played club from like 14 to 18. I only got one shot at it. Oh, wow. That's, uh, and I guess it was just such a good experience. It must have stuck with you. So um, as I'm sure you know, uh, this show and all of the listeners love uh, a good name drop here. So was there any uh, big names on those uh, club or high school teams that you played with that, um, that you want to shout out for the volleyball community out here? That's what's so funny is a bunch of really cool guys, but I don't think a lot of them had goals to play at the post-secondary level. Like our setter was really good, Brian Connor. He played at Niagara College. Um, I think our best player, I doubt he's even listening, was Craig Jones. And the funny thing was he was so focused on his education and where he wanted to go that like schools were approaching him. And I thought it was like the coolest thing to see like Brenda Willis or, or some other coaches at like a club tournament. And like he would get attention and be like, oh, no, like I'm just going to focus on my studies. And I was so like envious of this because I was like, if I had the opportunity, I would have went anywhere to play post-secondary volleyball and to see a guy who didn't want to. I was like, why are you doing that? But I, I guess that pops up in our sport time to time. It's just guys are thinking the next step and it's not going to be worth it or they want a, more of a college or university experience. So yeah, like nobody on our club team, I think would really be like a next level player. They, they, we were good. Like I think we took a third, well, good. We took, we won bronze at tier two provincials one year in 18 U. but I mean, yeah, we didn't have anybody who really went on to play at the next level. Wow. Awesome. So thanks for sharing that. Um, and then you mentioned pretty much immediately after your 18U club season, you started to dabble into the coaching. So what was your uh, your first kind of coaching exposure you started to have? So I always found coaching pretty funny. Like I was the kid who didn't have a babysitter because my dad coached sports. So instead of like being at home with a babysitter, like I would go hang out at an arena and just not get in trouble or be at a ballpark and just not get in trouble, right? Because he's obviously busy coaching a squad. So he kind of just like hang out and go to the playground or do whatever. But like 
you, you would never try to be a distraction or anything. So I always had like a good relationship with sport. And then it kind of clicked with me that I, I loved volleyball. I loved other sports. Like I was playing lacrosse at a decent level. Uh, I played like three sports every year at high school. So I, I kind of identified as being an athlete, but I knew I wasn't going to go to a level that I thought I should as an athlete like or that I wanted to be a part of. So I got into coaching pretty young. Like I think I got my level one coaching certification when I was in grade 12 even. Like I, I wanted, I started the pathway of like, I want to coach, what do I need to do? Like, I'm not a former player at a high level. So what do I need to do? So I went like the education route a little bit. Um, and then I think I did what some people do in their high school. Like I volunteered to be an assistant coach with the junior girls team in their season, which was like a time management nightmare. Cause I still had my basketball team and that commitments during our season, but I helped out with their team. Um, and then when I went to Durham college and I didn't make the squad and, and I mean, rightfully so I thought I should have made it, but, uh, I didn't, uh, being in Oshawa, I just sent a random email to, uh, Gerald and Rita at DRBC and I got to coach club volleyball that year. It was kind of a cool setup. 12 U was just starting. So there was like three or four coaches in the gym and we would coach this pack of like 30 kids and we would divide them into three teams and go to tournaments. So it was kind of a cool opportunity where, I was learning how to coach and I wasn't the head coach, but because we had so many kids in the gym, you had like opportunities to lead drills and do other stuff. So I'd say that was probably the first opportunity is just being this random college guy in a gym with a pack of kids and, and trying to coach that way. No way. Uh, and what age was this uh, DRVC group? So it was 12U and I laughed today because if I ever see like Ashley Anzel, who I obviously when I worked at the OVA, I saw her on the beach tour a lot. I got to coach her in the one volleyball league. Like I've known Ashley Anzel since she was like 10 years old and there were some other people in that era that it was just so funny. Like uh, O'Leary, who was the libero at Brock, like you just see like the same names pop up over and over again. And here I was just a, a volunteer who was, you know, upset he wasn't going to play at Durham that year, but started cold calling people and wanted to be involved somehow in club volleyball. So it was kind of a, I don't know, the more I, I, I reflect on my pathway, I've gotten just some lucky breaks or got to be involved just because there's awesome people in the community who are willing to like answer an email or give somebody a shot. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of coaches out there that are, they're always willing to, to take anyone who's got the initiative to ask if they can help out uh, coaching a team. So I think for all the listeners out there that are wanting to get into coach, fire off an email because I'm sure coaches will be loving to, to have that uh, support out there. Yeah, definitely. I think now that I'm involved in more clubs and I kind of see the background, like that might be the biggest stopgap, at least in Ontario, is I don't I believe there's enough kids. I, I think there might even be enough facilities. I think the reason some clubs aren't growing is because they don't have the coaches to give to the kids, right? Like I think at least at Leaside every year, if we had more coaches, we could run more teams and we would be cutting fewer kids from our sport. So if anyone's ever interested and they don't think like, oh, I'm not qualified, club volleyball is this super elite thing, like no, sometimes you just need somebody who cares in the gym who wants to learn and organize a practice. Like you don't have to be elite to be involved all the time. Yeah, I know. That's, uh, that's so true. Um, so then how long did you kind of deal with uh, DRVC? Because uh, I actually didn't even know you coached there. I mean, I'm familiar with you in the in the Leaside program, but is there uh, is there any other clubs that you were involved with, involved with that uh, I might be overlooking here? Uh, ooh, trying to think. So yeah, it would have been DRVC when I was at college in Oshawa. And then when I first moved to Toronto, I coached at Interclub. They don't really exist anymore. If you if you trace back the history, I think Interclub actually would get credit for sparking Phoenix and Gallus, Galaxy. Yeah, excuse that was me. like uh, Mark Riley's club, right? Yeah, yeah. So I worked for Mark Riley. Like that was so funny when I knew I wanted to work in sport. Like I was taking communication arts and with like a focus on advertising. But near the end of my degree, I didn't. I don't know. I wasn't having this ethical dilemma, but I thought advertising was a little sneaky sometimes, where you're trying to like 
almost create a fault and then, oh, magically we have a product to sell to you. So I was kind of like, ah, I can do this, but it's like not that appealing where I started to shift more in the sports world. And then I, I again, cold called Mike Sleen, who was in Pickering, which is in the Oshawa area. And he had just opened a facility called Solstice Sport. They had four outdoor beach courts. And I started my, I did my college internship with Mike Sleen. And then I got a job with Mark Riley because they were business partners. So that's how I moved to Toronto and started working in volleyball. And I think if you trace it back after college, I've never had a job outside of volleyball, which is kind of exciting and sad all at the same time. <laughs> I, it's funny because I actually say I don't think I've ever gotten a job my entire career that wasn't because of volleyball in some way. So don't, uh, you're not the only one in that boat, that's for sure. Awesome. Um, so yeah, so a lot of a lot of information there. So you had some time with the Solstice Sport, you had some time with Inner Club, um, and then was this when you started to transition to, uh, to into the beach world, or was it still predominantly indoor at this point? Yeah, like um, when I was 16, my parents moved to Kincardine, and that was kind of my first exposure to beach volleyball, where we knew what it was in Brussels and Wingham, but like we didn't know how it should be played. So going to a town like Kincardine, which has a pretty strong cottage community, so people who just move up for the summer, and they've got some awesome courts there, and some great people in the community, like uh, Doug Holtby and some other people in the community, like when they take the ice out at the arena in Concordia, the Junior C fill, uh, team fills it with sand, and they run the most fun tournament you've ever been to. And it's it's not twos because they don't want to change the line. So it's either you play four on four or six on six. Uh, and it's just cool to see like a small town hockey arena filled with sand and everybody passionate about beach volleyball. So uh, I took my high school buddies and we played one year and it was awesome. But then you start meeting other guys and then you learn to like go to the beach and hack around. So I kind of knew what beach volleyball was. But then after working with Sleener and Mark Riley, guys who have played and represented Canada, like I, again, the same idea I had going from like high school to club and beyond is there's just another level when you you're around people who just understand the game so high. So it was it was fun working with kids and again just like learning about a new sport because I think the skills are similar between beach and indoor, but from a tactical and just an environmental standpoint, it's so different. So it was just kind of fun to be involved in volleyball still, but kind of like still learning and progressing something. So I, I'd say that was my first experience at high performance beach, and I could see what it was. That's awesome. I, and then those are two great guys. I mean, Mike and uh, and Mark Riley, anyone who spends time around them, they all quickly let you fall in love with beach with no with no time there. Um, so that's awesome. So um, and then what was kind of the next journey? So you're spending time with uh, the Solstice Club and uh, in Inner Club. And then uh, and then what was the next step for you? When did you kind of realize like, hey, you know what, I want to I want to keep going. I want to start to dabble into higher and higher levels and see how far I can take this. So again, just through networking, like meeting awesome people, like I'd say two of the people that I hung out the most the first year I moved to Toronto was like Chris Simic and Christian Redmond. And if you're around those guys, like you're, you're talking about volleyball, you're learning about volleyball, right? So it was just kind of cool to hear what the next level could be. And then I got really lucky uh, coaching an inner club. There's a few teachers involved in like one of the clubs that would, I wouldn't say like is it directly affiliated, but like Upper Canada College definitely benefited from Inner Club because a bunch of their kids went on to play club and then they won an offset championship with like Will Sidgwick, who I think was good in the stud and like Colm Kenny and a few other guys. So just an example of how like club volleyball can really help boost a high school program. But I, I met the two teachers there, Derek Poon and Mike Murphy, and they all of a sudden let me start coaching at UCC. So I'm just getting more coaching reps and more exposure there. And I think just seeing like the the Sidgwick era of UCC and seeing how those guys progressed to university was kind of a cool pathway of like how to get an athlete to the next level and then combining that with seeing with like 
Redmond and Simic liked to have fun, but at the end of the day, they were still professionals at that time. So seeing what it takes to be a professional athlete and stuff. So it was kind of dabbling in that experience a little bit. And then the OVA beach job came up where Christina Nylander needed uh, someone to help with the OVA beach tour. He needed a sidekick. So she was the full-time staff and I was going to be the guy going to events. And then magically just happened that I, I was her assistant for about three weeks. And then she decided, you know, she was going to go back to school and be a nurse and have an awesome career. So I got the OVA gig and, and took that over. So it was just more and more exposure to our sport and just seeing a higher level. So even when I was working at the OVA, I still had goals of coaching, but now when your day job is surrounded with people like Jason Japanier and all the athletes and coaches who, you know, are, are around the OVA, you're just constantly having these conversations and seeing the next level where, you know, if, if you're obsessed about volleyball and you're working in volleyball, it's just so easy to to plan your route and see what the next thing is and ask so-and-so a question. So yeah, I've been exposed to a lot of lucky situations that just kind of kept snowballing for me and where I wanted to go. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, actually when you got that job with the OVI, I think that's when I first met you. And I was a, I was a young athlete. I didn't really know what your role was. I just knew that if I ever forgot to register for a beach tournament, I had to call you <laughs> and get the and get in there. But um, a lot of information there. So I just want to backtrack to kind of the UCC. So when you were working there, were you uh, did you take on the full head coaching job or were you still assistant coaching along someone? That's what's so awesome. We get great people in the community. So Derek Poon, I don't know what they call it at UCC because they have a, a little different tiering system, but he basically he was like a vice principal of the school, but he was also like a former gym teacher and the volleyball coach where I had talked to him about like what my goals are and what I want to do. So he he helped create this situation where I was coaching like the 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 young team, like the the junior school team, which was I think would have been technically grade eight. Uh, I was coaching them, but then I would assist with the seniors because obviously the junior school guys didn't train every day. So I had an opportunity to like do my own thing, try a few drills, mess some stuff up, but then also like be an arm or, you know, to be taking stats or, or trying to scout at tournaments really quickly. So I kind of just got like a lot of coaching experience at, at a short amount of time. And I mean, going to high school tournaments with UCC because they felt like the league always wasn't the caliber they wanted to be at. Like their goal was to win offsa. So you go to the St. Mike's tournament and you're playing against like Glebe and Chatham Kent. And, you know, the first time I saw Justin Scapanello in high school, I thought he was so awesome. And playing against Garrett Mays Birchmount, like I, I think having passionate people like Derek Poon who wanted to expose like his athletes to the highest level so they could compete at like a triple A offsa. It also helped me as a coach kind of see like their pathway and player development. Like they were the first time I ever saw like a coach really get like fired up at a high school game. And I was like, you guys take this really seriously. And they just kind of gave me the nod. Like, yeah, we do. Like they were fired up. So I don't know. I just being super lucky to be around that and just seeing the the next level. Cause it's, it's funny. I think some people think that like high school is so far away from university, but if you have a coach who's fired up and taking you to tournaments, like there's some pretty serious high school programs in the province. And, and I definitely got to be a part of one and see what goes into it. Oh, wow. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, and then so after this UCC and starting to work with uh, the OVA Beach Tour, what was kind of the next step in, in your coaching progression here? So that's when um, it just kind of was a funny time at the OVA. It was viewed as a conflict of interest to coach club. So I think that's why I was putting so much time and energy and reworking my hours so I could be to like UCC by 430 to coach an afternoon practice is uh because you're an OVA staff, they didn't want you coaching a club because obviously if if you're working at the OVA and you're coaching for Club ABC, there's there's a viewed bias there, right? So uh, at that time, it was like no negotiation wasn't going to be allowed. So because of that, I started looking at, at different opportunities. So I had the UC, UCC thing going, excuse me, but then the George Brown women's job came up and I, I applied for that. 
Uh, I didn't get it, but the AD said he he liked me. He liked my passion. An, an athlete, Daniel Sazfran, who we call the godfather of the program, he had approached Ed and said, why don't you guys have a guys team? Like, what would we need to do to get that started? And uh, Ed Mark, the athletic director at the time, kind of pondered it over. And then when he didn't give me the women's job, he offered that if I volunteered, I could start the men's program. Uh, so between Daniel, Ed, and then we were matched with awesome guy, Chad Van Dyke, who actually works out West at, I think, Mount Royal now. He's a big shooter in the sports world now. Um, he was a student intern at George Brown and he was given the reins of like coordinate this, do this. And then I was going to coach the team. So we went on the hunt and just started doing open gym times at George Brown in, oh gosh, the fall of 2010 and started a program there. So it was just kind of a fun experience. And I think anyone who's ever been to college or university on the varsity side, I think every coach wants more gym time. So for us to start a men's volleyball program, we were given two nights uh, it was Wednesdays, 6 to 8 p.m. and Sundays, 8 to 10 p.m. So not exactly top tier times to train your team. But but what it did for us is the guys who were coming out to the team who just wanted to play, uh, we knew they were passionate, right? Because like if you're going to sacrifice your Sunday evening, 8 to 10, to come play volleyball on a team that doesn't exist, like we knew we had like the right guys. So we we were bad. Like I wasn't that good of a coach. Like the kids obviously were at George Brown weren't volleyball players, right? Because the school didn't even have a team when they applied to go there, right? So that was kind of the origins of George Brown. And then a year later, we're in the league and the, the ball started rolling there. But it was kind of like a very unique start that I look back and I think I was like frustrated and there was a lot of challenges and things going on. But I look back now and think like, how how lucky was I? Like I probably should have taken it like less seriously, like looking for conflict and looking at all the stuff we didn't have and think about like, how lucky am I right now? This is so much fun. Like, I wish I would have enjoyed it a little bit more. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, I just got a, a paper slid to my desk from our stats guy and, and the notes actually says that this was the, the first time in seven years that George Brown had a men's volleyball team. So you guys just pretty much pretty much picked up from nothing and, and created this team. So what were some of the main difficulties? I know you mentioned uh, obviously getting court time, but uh, was there anything else that you guys found super difficult uh, during that first year where you're essentially pioneering a new a new program to a school? Yeah, I think uh, getting players was tough. And like we actually had enough that we finally had to say like, we got to make a squad here because like, we, we were doing it at the drop in and we wanted to be super inclusive. But um, just with George Brown's facilities at the time, like the the one gym we had on Wednesday evenings, there was just only one court. Like the math didn't make sense. We couldn't set up two courts. So obviously, if you've got 35 guys in the gym, that's not a volleyball practice. And that's certainly not a college varsity practice where there's just too much standing around or you're not taking advantage of the net because everybody's doing different pepper variations or stuff, right? So we finally made a squad. And then because we had limited gym time and no budget, um, thanks to some really just fired up guys who wanted to play volleyball, they decided that they would buy their own jerseys. So we, we bought jerseys and oh, then wow. through my network of being around UCC. So I knew some club, uh, club coaches and high school coaches being at the OVA. I knew some college coaches is just reached out to some people in the community. And I was honestly like blown away with the support we got. So all of a sudden we're playing like Bobby Olympia's inner club team in Toronto here. So we got an exhibition match against a club team. Uh, we played against UCC's high school team once we, uh, I don't even remember how, but we got into the Fleming tournament. So after the holiday break, they have a tournament in January. And I don't know if somebody canceled or maybe they just invited us because they're, they're super nice. But we got into a college tournament and we thought that was like the Super Bowl. We thought that was the coolest thing ever. We had jerseys. We're going to this tournament. We're going to play against other colleges. And then from playing at the Fleming tournament, 
which we actually won a couple games. That was huge for us. Like we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what the level was. Uh, so we we won some games, and then you know you you start talking to Andrew Hinchy, was coaching at Durham. He gave us an exhibition game. Uh, Rusty Haynes was the head coach of the Trent Men. He offered us a game. So it was just a bunch of nice people in the community are like, oh, like you guys are a team now, but you don't have a schedule and you don't have anything formal. Like if you guys will bus here, we'll play you. Like I, I'm not going to travel to you, but if you can get here, we'll pay for refs. We'll play a game. So it was just kind of reaching out to some super inclusive people in the community. And all of a sudden we, we had a squad. We, we had some practice time. Uh, oh, we played Conestoga too. Like I'm just trying to think of all the coaches because I don't want to forget anybody, but yeah, Ariel at Conestoga, basically, uh, a bunch of people just started giving us shots and all of a sudden we built like this piece together schedule so the guys could feel like what post-secondary volleyball is supposed to feel like oh wow that's i didn't even realize so like just just confirming that first year you guys were not in a, in like an official ocaa league play right you were kind of mishmashing and setting up all these exhibition games and tournaments that's what i'm understanding from this yeah well, it was absolute bush league from the beginning so i think uh <laughs> in august i remember being in ashbridge's bay and I, I get the call and i'm thinking like oh did i get the did i get the women's gig and it's ed and he's telling me i didn't and i was like oh, okay like fine i'm what 23 or 24 years old and pissed off meanwhile i have no qualifications to be coaching a ocaa team but anyways but then he's like yeah we, we like your passion we we think like you're the guy who can help us rebuild a men's program he's like there's no budget and i was like what is no budget and he's like you would volunteer and there'd be no budget like there's there's no money like we can't we couldn't even host an exhibition game because we couldn't afford a ref like that's how bad it was right so oh, wow. but yeah like and then it just snowballed with having like chad as a student intern but he got the green light to feel like he was like an athletic director of a program or a sport coordinator so he took it super serious uh daniel zazfran was was the athlete trying to get people in the hallways or like just trying to meet people oh you play volleyball like or go to drop in or like bring these people out so yeah we had no budget no schedule we had two nights of gym time and then just started calling some super nice people who started let us into the league and then uh behind the scenes ed mark was doing the work that we got approved to enter the ocaa the year after so obviously there's some scheduling things that need to take control and stuff but uh yeah, it just all kind of pieced together that I think we showed the passion and at least the 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 trust that we could execute something and then it just started to work from there. Wow, what a what an incredible journey. And then so I was actually looking it up and I believe that next year you guys go from not even being in OCAA to now all of a sudden making playoffs in technically your first year of OCAA season play. Is that is that accurate? Uh, no, no, actually, sorry. The one more. So it took two years to really get it going. So our first okay. year, and this was what's so funny, is uh, I, I'm working at the OVA. I think I've put in my time. Like, I'm identifying that, like, I'm I'm a serious coach. We we put together this team, and, you know, we win a, turn, we win a match at the Fleming Tournament. Like, we're a college team, and we can, we can beat an 18-year boys club team if they're not, like, very good. Like, we could beat, like, a Tier 2 club team, but we probably couldn't beat a team. But we, we put together now, – now we're in the league, and we knew we were going to be in the league. So I had a couple recruits. We had a couple guys. Like, the team in our first year was actually pretty good. And I think one of the worst things that could happen to us is we go to the Cambrian tournament, and we just catch fire, and we win this tournament. And, and there's probably eight teams there. And we're thinking, like, yes, like, no expansion team. Like, we belong. Like, we've arrived. We're here. And the first semester, we went three and seven, uh, and we won our last two games before the break. So at one point, we were one and seven. Here I am, this OVA guy, thinking, like, I know volleyball. I'm going to take this league by storm. And, like, we couldn't stop a nosebleed. Like, it was so bad at some time. <laughs> like, I, I remember one hilarious story. Anyone who knows Robert Chung, just salt of the earth, nicest guy, like, takes volleyball super seriously. The only time I've ever seen him laugh is we're getting thumped by loyalists. And it's got to be like 20 to 7 at this point. And I look over and Robert's laughing and so is our whole bench. And I was like, 
guys, what's so funny? Like we're getting embarrassed. We're about to get swept and we haven't even got like the double digits yet. And Robert starts going, oh, I just told Richard to do this. And he looks over and says, I know. And then Robert starts laughing. He's like, he knows. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. <laughs> so basically Robert's trying to get this kid feedback and he brushes him off. And instead of Robert lighting him up like he normally would, he just starts laughing. He's like, this kid has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> but anyways, um, we, we go on a run. Like, we're getting better. Like I said, we won our last two games before the break. And then in the second half, I think we came out of the gates and we were like 5-0 and and all of a sudden in the playoff hunt. And we needed to beat... The, the problem was we, we didn't beat a team who was like in the top three. So we, we started off 5-0 and and again thought we were really awesome and pushing for this playoff hunt. But then we lost to Loyalist who had a good team that year and lost to Durham. And that kind of squashed our mathematical hopes. But... It did give the guys a little bit of belief that we started off as like this one in seven team who couldn't do anything. It could barely play. And I think we ended up eight and 12. And yeah, we either lost a tiebreaker to get in the playoffs or we lost by one match. Like I think we were that close. So it was kind of just cool to kind of confirm that we were getting better. And at least it started to look like volleyball. But yeah, that first semester, uh, any athlete who's ever got injured and had struggled with, with like their identity, I was feeling that as a coach because I thought I identified as a really good coach and we were terrible. And like the, it just kind of yeah. it's, it's such a lonely feeling to be like, oh, I thought I was good at this. And uh, the, the proof's in the pudding. I am not. But it was it was good that we surely got it together. And then year two was awesome. And, and beyond that was really good. So but yeah, it was not we, we didn't come crashing out of the gates and take over by any means. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com, to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Yeah, well, I can imagine it's uh, it's not something that can be a quick build, especially in a, in a league like the OCAA, where you've got just schools that seem to be constantly producing top recruits and, and attracting the some of the top talent in the in Ontario, like your Mohawks, your Fanshawe, and, and your Humbers. So it, it must be tough to just try to compete with those teams that are already so well established and, and just or just the name themselves are drawing some of the top talent. Yeah, definitely. And especially with George Brown, because we're starting a program from scratch, right? So even though we get into the league in my second year there, there's technically no budget. Like uh, the, the OCAA has done a really good job about like athlete assistance. And if you get on the, the honor roll, you get a little bit more money and you do some other things. But competing with, with Humber's budget, I mean, I walk through the halls of Humber and I start to feel a sense of pride because their athletic center is like so professional. Like the kids are on posters, like there's jerseys hanging everywhere. Like that is... That is a top tier athletic department. So if you're recruiting a kid from the GTA and it's coming down to George Brown versus Humber at that time, like it was Humber a hundred times out of a hundred, like they were, they were good. Uh, Sheridan Seneca had a good program. So like it was really tough to like recruit, but what we did find is like the kids who wanted to be at George Brown, 
um, mostly because of their their program, right? So because they were taking their studies seriously, like if you could just apply that work ethic to volleyball, that's where we got pretty lucky that we had uh, a lot of smart kids who were hardworking. Now we decided to teach them volleyball. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And, and now I'm just kind of looking at some of the history of George Brown. So it's it's now a team that seems to always kind of be competing and making a playoff push. So it's got to be a huge sense of pride on your end, knowing that, Hey, you like, we were the guys, we pioneered this. This doesn't happen without the hard work we put in without the one in seven starts to the season, but still grinding it through. You've got to have a, a huge sense of pride and kind of seeing that they're still seeing what they're doing even to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of try to walk the line there where I don't want to take credit for something, but I, I, I do look back at George Brown and it was a lot of fun. And like I said, I wish I would have enjoyed it more when I was there. Cause when I, I, I left, I, I chose, I think I was pretty burnt out and I was picking fights with the admin that didn't need to happen about like one year we had an academic all Canadian and like the form didn't get submitted. I'm like, this kid could have had an award and a banquet and, and been celebrated, but you guys forgot the form. Like, how does that happen? Or one year at the Niagara tournament, our hotel wasn't booked. So as a struggling guy trying to be a professional coach, I'm putting on two nights a hotel for a college team on my credit card. Like that wasn't a good feeling. So there's just little things happening like off the court that started to really annoy me. But no, when I, I chose to step away, I thought the team was well established. And then Garrett May calls me out of nowhere. He was a good friend. And he's like, I'm thinking about applying. Like, tell me about the job. I was like, dude, dude it would be awesome if he took over. Cause even when you leave a program like that, like, you don't want your ego to say like, oh, I built this and it's going to crumble when I'm not there. Like, no, I put in a lot of work to this and I want to see it do well. And now even with Garrett stepping aside, some guys who, some men and women who have applied for the job have reached out to me just to ask a couple questions. And I think whoever they hire for the next coach is going to do a great job too. So it's kind of just reached this point where good people want to be a part of it. The program's in a good place where, yeah, I definitely don't want to take credit for something I haven't done because I haven't been around in the, the last five or six years here. But at the same time, it does feel nice to kind of establish the foundation and see what other people can do with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm sure there's a, a lot of people that uh, owe their thanks to a young boy taking a risk on a, on a new team with a new school. Um, so after George Brown, what was the next step in the career then? So I got super lucky with, with Ed Mark. He was he wasn't going to micromanage and, and he obviously had a lot of teams to deal with, but he was supportive if he came with a good idea. So around my second year at George Brown, maybe my first year, I think it was my second year, um, Center of Excellence has popped up in Canada. So James Snedden in Volleyball Canada, I think Glenn Hogue, he doesn't take a lot of credit, but I think he helped design the program as well, where they piloted this program in BC and then it had reached Ontario and I applied to run a center in Toronto. And basically what a center of excellence was, was you train a bunch of athletes who want to play post-secondary, even want to play for the national team someday, but there's no team affiliation. So you just, you just drill them, you just rep them, you teach them like systems and skills, but because you're not worried about like playing time or anything, like you're just really focused on their individual development. And, and Ed had approved to donate the gym time to us. And then whatever money like the VC gives to host it went to the men's budget. So it made sense on a lot of levels where I got to coach a lot. Uh, and I was making money for our program. So if we did want to go to an extra tournament or if we couldn't afford something or if we wanted to play this club team because we're recruiting their player and now I can pay for a ref and it just makes for a better experience if we're going to do an exhibition game, we can afford to have like a ref crew there and all that stuff. So like I look back and I, I don't know how I did it because I'm in my early 20s and super passionate, but I would coach the center of excellence with with friend of the show, Matt Harris from 6 to 8 a.m. I would mission to the OVA office and try to be there for nine, work my nine to five, 
And then after work, I would either coach George Brown or my club team. I always had a a good practice that evening. So I was coaching a lot. Unfortunately, I had to give up UCC at that time because there just wasn't enough hours in the day. But that was basically a weekday for me. And Center of Excellence was like almost 30 weeks long. Um, So it was just volleyball every single day that I always had something in the evening and I had practice in the morning and I just got a ton of coach reps and not a lot of sleep. But that was probably the next step is just working with center of excellence. And then you work with like super awesome athletes because Eddie kid who's going to come practice at six in the morning. Like they love volleyball. So that's where I met like Dylan Hunt and Regan Harrington and some other people who just went on to play at the next level, Ethan Ellison. Like you meet these super passionate kids and because you're not worried about playing time or, or winning that Saturday at the OVA, like he can really set across a plan and say for the next eight weeks, we're going to do this and we're not very good at it now, but we're going to get really good at it. Like, and it was just such a joy to coach, that level and then to see them do well with their club teams because obviously as an OVA guy I'd see them play at uh, OCs at Rim Park there and yeah just put trying to put in a ton of hours but as soon as you're exposed to like the center of excellence and and Volleyball Canada is giving you drill design and you start using that on your own teams and all of a sudden your own teams start getting pretty good from this because you're stealing ideas and then um because of that uh again thanks to the ova for one letting me manage my hours around like what my coaching was going to be on the outside like uh, alicia littams was my boss and I, I think as long as i got my work done it was fine like if you want to work from seven till three uh like seven in the morning till three in the afternoon so you can coach high school in the afternoon that's fine get your work done if you want to start at like nine or nine thirty because you were just at center of excellence that's fine but you're here till five and you got to get your work done so it was just kind of a cool environment. And then uh, uh, somehow, I still don't know how I did this, I convinced Alicia to let me apply for Team Ontario. So after I did Center of Excellence, George Brown was rolling and I was happy with what I accomplished there. I, I applied for Team Ontario and got a job there. So I got to coach on the indoor side first as an assistant coach with Team Ontario and just kind of kept identifying small goals of what the next step was going to be and go. And yeah, it just kind of started to work together where I was in such a hurry to do it at a young age. But now as I look back, it kind of the timing worked out and I don't think there's a way to shortcut to be a good coach. I think you do have to put in all these years and struggle a little bit that you just can't show up and think you should be the head coach of the provincial team. Like it doesn't work that way. No, definitely. I I feel like everyone's got to pay their dues and take their one in seven starts to a season because you learn so much from them. Definitely. I think losing like that definitely gets your attention where you get, you get the poor me's for a while. Then you're like, I got to figure out a solution because this is not good. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. So, so now you're with Team Ontario Indoor, and is this a, a Canada Games Team Ontario, or what was the the feel of this team? Oh gosh, no, no. That was my first experience to an HPC. Uh, Corinne Williams from Preds was the head coach, and she was she was awesome. She was the perfect one to to learn from the first year, and um, we we were the B team, but you know what? We we be pretty good. We had a good team that year, and it was interesting. Like the the eighteen U A team. Uh, Scott Hunt was the head coach and he did a great job and I think their team was kind of positioned to win and then our team was positioned a little bit that if you see like a 16 year old it's pretty good like you should probably take them because 16 year provincial team didn't exist then so we were kind of labeled as development but we still had like a lot of awesome players like Megan Morelli, Lauren Veltman, uh, just a bunch I'm forgetting people Carolyn LeMay I think Sarah Kovac was on our team and now she's on the national team like it was just kind of cool to be a team Ontario team but kind of be labeled as development so um the technical director at the time Jason Japania he had this cool rule that if you made the provincial team there was going to be like a 70 30 playtime rule on our team so because we weren't positioned to like go there and we weren't going to get yelled at if we didn't win the tournament um 
no kid was going to play more than 70% and no kid was going to play less than 30%. So it was just kind of cool to strategize, but also pay attention to the lineups and making sure you're putting people in uh, situations to be successful. And it was just kind of a cool thing of, of, that was probably my first mix of like player development still belongs in high performance, but like, how do you walk the line of it? So that, that was a good opportunity. And then just being around team Ontario, like I don't think a lot of people know this, but like, you coach all day, you probably have two sessions and you're sitting at the lunch table, you're talking about volleyball. And when the kids go to bed and have curfew and you're in coaches meetings, you're still talking about volleyball. Like you're just surrounded by it the whole time that I think maybe the kids think like, oh, it's nighttime and I'm going to go watch a movie with my friends. Maybe the coaches are watching a movie. No, we're in a room arguing about like who our P2 is going to be and what system we need to play to score more points. Like it never (laughs) ended, right? Like it's just three weeks of pure volleyball talk and it was awesome to be like exposed to that. Yeah, no kidding. So I, I want to dabble into kind of some an opinion thing here. So you said something interesting where there was some restrictions on you for like this. No players playing more than 70, no players playing less than 30% of the time. Um, from from your experience, like at, at what point or at what level do you start to all of a sudden say, you know what, we got to abandon these kind of rules and we're out there to win. Is that do you wait until like a, you're at a university college level or a top tier 18U team that might be competing for nationals? At what point do you kind of say, you know what, we, we got to go out there to win a medal and 70, 30 playing time rules, uh, we're starting to put them in, in the bag? Yeah, no, that's, that's such a great question. I, I think with how I ran my club teams, like at the college team, it, it was, we said it right from the start, like playing time is not a charity and we're going to try to win the game. Like if you get in the game, it's because we think you can help us not because we just took a bus to Ottawa and I feel obligated to play you. Like there was guys who did not play a lot of minutes. And if they had a problem with that, like that, that happens in the practice gym. Like you need to work on this, this, and this, like, I think post-secondary, yeah, it's, it's not a charity. You got to earn everything you get. But when I coach a club team, I, I don't, follow the 70 30 rule but i think if a kid is going to be on your club team and travel to these tournaments and pay the fees that are necessary to play club volleyball in ontario right now i I get everyone in in pool play and it's not a charity like you're looking for situations to get them in so they can contribute and be challenged and and play but yeah if you're on a josh nickel team playing club volleyball you're going to play during pool play and then in the playoffs like we're trying to win so that's where i've tried to like strike a balance of development and being inclusive and like if you're going to take a kid on your team it's your job to coach them up so they can contribute like if they can't play that's that's on you as a coach like this is just a teenager who loves volleyball you got to coach them up so that's how I kind of walk the balance of you know club volleyball is high performance and people take it very seriously but like I said if you're on our roster you're going to play somehow some way on that Saturday tournament and then when the playoffs hit like we're we're invested we're trying to win the tournament and we'll we'll ride the best six guys if that's what it takes. Or if you're going to be a serving sub or a guy who goes in and gets a dig or a block, like we're going to do whatever it takes to win that game. Yeah. Th- thanks for sharing that insight. Cause I can guarantee, I know even myself as a coach, that's always a constant battle you you have in your mind of, you know, do I, do I just go out there and, and play the stars and roll all six players the entire time? Or, do I got to get, uh, get everyone in? So, so thanks for sharing your kind of insight on that. Because I think for me and my relationship to sport, because I played so many sports growing up, like I, I've been on teams where I've been like the guy and don't get me like, it's a great feeling and you feel awesome and you want to go to practice every day. And I've also been like the worst player on the team. And I can tell you when I had coaches who like still make you feel like you're connected to the team or you're a part of it, like 
there was one year in lacrosse I wasn't very good and my job was to like shadow the other team's best player and just play defense and when we got the ball back I got off the floor but because I was given this role and I had a clear understanding of it like I still felt like I was contributing and I was helping the team so if I have an athlete on my club team who doesn't contribute very much you still try to give them a role and like I said it can be a serving sub it can be a double sub with your setter it could be go get a block go get a dig like as long as they feel valued and they're going to go help the team like you got to connect that way versus oh you know we're just going to play our best seven the rest of the day and that's the way it's going to be like kids want to be challenged and I think kids know more than we give them credit that they know where they stand on the depth chart right so it's not like they they think they're the best player and they should be playing all the time but you still got to find a role and make sure they feel like they're contributing to help their team yeah that's awesome that's a great way to look at it actually that's awesome. Um, so just re- rewinding back to the Team Ontario now. So so how did uh, that season go while working with kind of the B slash uh, development team? It was awesome. Yeah, we finished, I think we lost our quarterfinal and then you play the 5-6 match or whatever. So we either finished fifth or sixth. But again, just being at a National Team Challenge Cup and then obviously supporting Scott's team, who I think... I think they won they definitely played alberta in the final i'm trying to think like that's what's so funny is that when you're there it's so important that you win but now as i look back like whenever that was five six years ago i don't i don't know what happened so but at the time it was really important <laughs> i can tell you um but no he had like alina dorman and michelle shelladurai and some other like top players so it was fun to support them and be around them but no that was kind of the first balance of like we want to win like we're, we're here to compete this is team ontario like we have the best of the best but at the same time we got to make sure we develop that if we're going to fly a kid to Winnipeg, like they need to play. Right. And I think that that's the important thing is like in coaching, I think very good stands out and very bad stands out. And there's just this huge area in the middle. That's like probably 80% of your team is just gray area. Right. So trying to find the right balance of playing time and contributing and, and what their goals are. So, no, that was really fun. And then I think because I gained that experience that I, I was hungry for more, I was lucky to get the opportunity to coach the 18 year girls, as a head coach and that was a great experience i really enjoyed that um had timo experience on the beach which uh, again was just another great experience that i I think when i was younger and i started coaching that i I thought team ontario was like this elite thing and it was a credibility and if you were going to coach it excuse me you were you were like the best of the best but when i got there i was actually surprised how much learning is still going on and how much ideas are still being shared and that's something i really appreciate that that even though you're a Team Ontario head coach, it doesn't mean you've made it. It doesn't mean you can't say, I don't know. It doesn't mean you can't call up Dustin Reed and be like, I'm thinking about doing this system, but it's not working. Like, how long should this take? Like, you, you, I, you're never done in this role as a coach, I think. Or for whatever reason, when I started coaching, you look at like Phil Jackson and those guys and be like, oh, they must have it all figured out. But coaching never gets old to me. You're always figuring it out. You're always making mistakes and it, it is never going to be perfect. And like I said, you're you're never done, right? You're always working for more. And I think that's why I've, so obsessed with it actually yeah no kidding so so you mentioned there was like you could always reach out to dustin reed was there any other coaches like throughout this entire journey that you found like hey this is this is a, almost like a mentor that i would reach out to or spitball ideas off of and learned a ton from was there any other major coaches like that that had a huge impact on your coaching style or stuff you would implement in into your teams man that's, that's such a good question and I don't think I've ever told anybody this story because it's actually a, a little embarrassing. But when that's, I, that's the whole point of passing down. For sure. Share those stories. <laughs> no, when I started coaching, so when I really took coaching seriously, so I would have still been at Durham College. And the internet what isn't what it is now. Like you couldn't live stream a university match. You couldn't do this stuff. So I'm still like going through the internet and trying to find stuff and obviously paying attention to the national team. But 
if I got to a point where I couldn't figure something out, like because I was studying communication arts and advertising, a big part of that program is like sales. So you got to be comfortable cold calling and being told no and being rejected where uh, I took the art of the cold call and I would email people that I didn't even know. Like I, I, I could probably search through my inbox. I emailed Brenda Willis before I even knew who she was. And I'd be like, Hey, I was at this coaching symposium. I heard you talk about this. Can you answer this question for me? Or I would email the Seneca coach, Jason Cliff and be like, Hey, you guys triple blocked at the Durham tournament. And I noticed like your left side does this footwork. Like, how do you teach that? How do you do that in practice? And he's probably checking his email being like, who the heck is Josh Nickel? And why is he emailing me about triple block footwork? But like, that's just the type of guy I was where I, if I saw something and I, I, don't get me wrong. Like I wasn't just going to ask them how to do it. Like I investigated, I tried to find video. I tried to read up on it. But if I got to a point where I was just like, oh, I'm kind of stuck, I'm going to email the coach of U of A right now and see if I get an answer. And I was actually blown away by the amount of people who email back and want to chat volleyball. And they, they didn't owe me anything. I was just a kid in residence at Durham College trying to talk about volleyball. And here are these like superstar coaches who have made it, who are emailing me back drill plans and ideas and how to teach it. And I was I was honestly blown away with how awesome and inclusive the volleyball community was. But yeah, I don't think I've ever told anybody that where I, I was the guy cold calling because I couldn't figure it out on my own and I knew somebody else had the answer. <laughs> that's a, that's hilarious. So was there any uh, coach or coaches in specific that uh, kind of constantly responded to these cold calls or, or maybe gave you such valuable information that has just stuck with you through your entire coaching career? Is there anything that really sticks out out of all of these uh, emails that you're spamming to coaches around uh, all of Canada? Yeah, I wish I, I had it in front of me because I would like to give credit to people who answered back. But honestly, like, there was so many replies that I, I can't even think of one where I'm just like, wow, that person I would call like a mentor because it happens so informally. And I'm, I'm trying to think like the same thing when I started working for Mike Sleen at Social Sport, we'd go for, go for dinner after training session. Cause that's one great thing about coaching beach is as soon as it gets dark, you're done. So you're, you're done at eight 30 at night and you go for dinner after and, and just having like informal conversations. I think that's where I probably learned the most is not, not always at a coaching symposium where the expert has an hour to put up a PowerPoint and just talk. Like it's just nice to hear a story and then ask a question and have them respond and all, oh, what would you do here? And, and just, I think, I think mentorship in our sport definitely needs to exist. And I think coaching is really hard and anyone who can share ideas, but honestly, if your circle of friends and your network of people is just constantly talking about volleyball, I think informally is, is probably where I've learned the most actually. 100%. And I hope we can carve out at least uh, 10 minutes at the end of this show to have some of that informal coaching banter. But uh, I do want to give uh, the proper due respect to the rest of your uh, coaching journey here. So uh, getting back on track. So you, you've coached with the uh, Team Ontario indoor team. And then and then what was the next major jump for you there, Josh? So it was just really weird timing. And I don't recommend anybody do this. But uh, because I wanted to be a coach, uh, I knew I needed a university degree. So I was doing online education through this whole process, trying to like bridge my diploma from Durham College to Athabasca. And I was getting my degree and I was just kind of like dabbling a little bit. And then finally, I was just like, enough's enough. Like, I got to finish this thing. So I actually stopped working at the OVA and I became like a full time student while still coaching George Brown and still coaching club. Um, and then when I finished that. It was the worst timing ever. There was no university jobs up for grabs. There was no colleges. Like I wasn't going back to George Brown and I was unemployed and I had my university degree, but there was no hunting there. And then it just so happened that again, another friend like had reached out and said, Hey, like I know when we coached together, George Brown, Dana Cook, good friend, like she was at my wedding. She's like, I know with your George Brown guys, you did a ton of stats and video and like you didn't have a third party service. You were doing it on your own. 
um, Volleyball Canada is looking for somebody to assist Chris Galbraith on the beach side because Chris is living in Kingston. He's like a data volley expert, but we want somebody in practice who can film it, uh, give feedback, show them coach's eye, send them video over the, the weekend or in the evenings. And I was like, I would love to do that. So I interviewed with Steve Anderson and all of a sudden I'm like an assistant performance analyst to the next gen athletes here in Toronto and, and giving feedback and the, the salary was not great to start, but here I am a guy with no, no other options and I want to coach and here's somebody offering me like a part-time coaching gig. Um, so that's how I got in with Volleyball Canada was Chris Galbraith did such a great job with data and stuff, but because he was remote, they're like, this is awesome, Chris, but we we take advantage of your skills at competitions. How can we connect this to practice? And away I went. All of a sudden, I'm working with the national team in the summer, spring 2017 and that was kind of my first gig with volleyball canada and i've been loving it ever since wow that's awesome so me being an engineer i'm a huge numbers nerd as well and and i actually have a lot of kind of i love talking to pat johnson because he's also a big stats guy over with fanshawe and and it's funny because i remember talking to him a few times and you know he bounces starting rotation ideas off of us and you know, I give him my two cents. I go, this guy's got to be your starter. And, and he goes, well, actually, you know, funny enough is our numbers show that uh, the other guy should be. So from, from your knowledge and being like the stats guy uh, for the national uh, beach team, like at what point do you kind of say relying on the numbers versus, you know what, my gut's just telling me to go this direction. Like where do you kind of draw the line or, or do you try to look for a new stat to, to potentially shed light on that area that you're just, your gut's telling you this has got to be the way. Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm glad we got you to do this because you're you're definitely doing a great job. And thanks again for doing this. Um, <laughs> I, I no think problem. I think sport and science will always fight over that. And the the reason I bring it up is I'm a big baseball fan, and I think Tampa Bay screwed the pooch this year when they took Snell out of the game because the numbers said you know after this pitch count his performance goes down. It's like you're in the World Series, your horse is rolling right now. Like don't listen to the numbers. Like listen to your gut yeah. and go for it. So there's there's always going to be those conversations. But I think what's fun about beach is what I, I really enjoy this part of coaching. I love indoor, but I, I love beach too, is playing time is not a factor. Like you play with your partner. So when I was doing stats and stuff with the national team, it was all about our performance. So I uh, just, just a law in volleyball, right? The team with the higher attack efficiency has a better chance of winning. Is it a guarantee that if you win that stat, you're going to win the game? No, but it is something that like we value. So that's how I would try to apply stats to practice is we would say, we value attack efficiency. Okay, so what does that look like? How do we, what's a direct cause of that? Okay, well, you need to pass in system. Okay, what's in system? So we're going to deliberately pass to this spot and we're going to either run like a push set or an up and down set or a back set. So we're like training these things and then you start getting into like, if this, then that statement. So we know attack efficiency, the biggest thing that will lower it is like getting blocked or making an error, right? So we're looking for the blocker here. If they're lined up here, you can chip or you can baby line or you can hit your cutty. Like what are some situations? So it was kind of reverse engineering in a way where we had these stats established and like a winning style of play. But then the challenge becomes, how do I train this? Like if we want to be the best attack efficiency team, what does that look like on Tuesday morning's practice? And I think that's where numbers can really help practice. But at the same time, we're playing a, a physical sport with humans who are making decisions like I, again, being a, a huge baseball fan, my Yankees got eliminated this year to a walk-off home run for a guy who doesn't hit sliders very well, and we threw him a slider, and he decked it. So even though the numbers say that he's yeah. he's not very good at this, well, every once in a while, like no number is going to be absolute, right? And then um, because I was a communication arts student, like trying to learn more and more about the math and what you engineer guys think about, 
I, I heard Nate go. He's the USA indoor scout and he's their guru and, and Nathan Jansen. And the, the smartest thing they've ever said that I, I really enjoyed about their presentation is we want the stats to tell a story. We don't want the athlete thinking about distribution. So just a small example would be like with the USA men right now, they have a system that's like pretty flexible. Like each role can do like three or four things. And then they just do that when they play a team. So when they played Canada at the time, he's like, I didn't want our players thinking that Gavin Smith was going to get 60% of the volume when he's in the front row. It was when Gavin's in the front row, this is our blocking scheme. And like as an athlete, I think I could really relate to that system where don't tell me about the numbers. Tell me how we're going to stop this guy in front of me. So even though the coaches knew the numbers and Nate knew the numbers, it was as simple as we're going to trap right because that's where Gavin is and that's going to be our blocking system. And I thought that was so smart where it's it's the perfect balance of this is a data-driven decision, but to the player, we're giving them the physical response. What's the decision? What's the physical response? What's your job right now? Not, oh, 60% of the time he's going to hit cross court. Who cares? How are we going to stop him, right, is the balance. And I think that's, that's where sport and science will always go back and forth. But at the end of the day, we're, we're playing a physical job. And I think the athlete needs to feel physical and athletic to, to do the job. Yeah, wow, that's that's great insight. But I, I think it's been really cool with volleyball because – the stats have just, even over the last 10 years, they've evolved so much. Like I think, you know, when I first started, the stat was pretty much kill, error, continue. And now just the <laughs> level of depth that it goes into is is incredible. It's really cool to see it develop. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that it's the same thing from your side. Well, it's almost gone too far. I laugh at guys that I still know who play in the league. And I joke with Chris Tao, who's on our beach team, and I was like, at U of T, like they played Windsor once, and if somebody didn't score on the first swing, it just turned into like this power tip, uh, power tip fest. If you didn't get a perfect set, because nobody wants to make the air anymore, right? Because an air is, is it lowers your attack efficiency, it doesn't help your team. Like yeah. you're giving away points. So if somebody took a good chew on the ball and there was a continue, all of a sudden you just start tipping towards the back row setter trying to get a block, or you're tipping trying to tool the block. But like as the rally got longer it felt like less guys were brave to do what you did and just go high off hands or take a swing or take a big chew on the ball where i always laugh at them i was like Moneyball era has reached the oua where people are more about like ball management <laughs> and situations versus like just the gutsy guy coming out of the left side hitting against a triple block trying to hit it into the bleachers and hope it hits off somebody right like i think that era needs to come back a little bit more with some of the data that i think we've discovered yeah, totally. Constantly a balance, just like he said. That's awesome. Um, okay, so back to back to the career then. So, um, so you've got this position as uh, the stats um, stats guy for the national team, and then uh, so what did you kind of learn from this? What did this uh, this role teach you? What was kind of the new uh, tools that you were able to put in your toolbox from this position? Yeah, I think I think it goes back to that direct cause thing where where you're right volleyball has come a long way with stats um it's come a long way with even video like for us the fiub at a three-star higher they have to record it they have to put it on a server so we have access to every match around the world at a three-star higher and i think that's awesome and i would imagine i would imagine indoor similar i don't know for sure where at least with indoor because you're moving as one big team like i know lionel the scout he'll go to the event where it's it's not feasible for me or or Chris Galbraith at the time to go to every single beach event, right? Like you can't afford to send Chris to Vienna and then to Qatar and then back to Cancun. Like you just, who, who has the budget to send a scout to every beach tournament in the world, right? So for the FAB to put everything on video was a big step. And then all of a sudden you got more people looking at it, more people statting it and more like game theory start coming out and more style of plays. So I think because everything's accessible, it's created this really exciting cat and mouse game where 
Like the, the numbers might say this is how Latvia plays, but then we have to take a serious look about how does Latvia play against us? And if we haven't played them directly, how do they play against a team who's like our doppelganger? Like what who looks like yeah. our team and who's similar? Because the the mountain of data might say Samoilovs does this against the rest of the world, but against us, he's going to do this. And I think that's the real ticket is like, what what is he looking for to make his decision? And then how are we going to stop it? Or what does he do against teams like us? Because... Sometimes data is really good, but sometimes it's too it's too vague, right? If you just take a big sample right. size. So trying to find the, totally. the the specifics of the stat and then how does that apply to us? And then I find the most challenging thing is how do we make it work for us? Because I've told this story a few times and, and I'm still kind of gutted about it where one of my first jobs scouting, I'm scouting for one of our next-gen women and I'm watching this team we're going to play and they're all the way in China and I send the report. And I identified that the the other team's blocker does a standing serve and she always serves corner to corner, like a cross court. So I'm thinking, this girl's going to run cross court every time she serves. We have to fire up our two ball. We have to run up like a speed offense. Like she's not going to be able to get to the net the whole match. Like if she wants to serve this way against us, she's crazy. So either we're going to beat them with speed or she's going to give up and start serving line to line, which isn't her most effective serve. I'm thinking, this is awesome. Uh, I get an email back from the team and they're like, yeah, we haven't practiced our two ball or our speed play enough that we're comfortable <laughs> using in a competition. I was just like, I'm such a failure as a coach that we just found this tactical advantage and we didn't like foreshadow it enough to use it in the tournament. So now it's like, oh, well, there goes that competitive advantage and you just feel like such an idiot, right? So from that point on, I'm always just trying to look at like, we're going to need this in a game sometime. So we need to train it now, right? Where I think sometimes in sport, when you lose, you kind of get attention to like what you need to train and go back. The, the biggest challenge is this unknown of like, are we going to train something that we don't need today, but we're going to need in eight weeks? And that's that's really where my mind has gone lately is about like, what are we going to need that we don't have yet that we can still convince the players that they, they, they need that even though it hasn't been exposed yet, right? So that's that's kind of my day-to-day daydreaming is like, what are we going to need and how do we train it? Yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought up that example because one of the, the other areas I want to pick your brain at is is where do you kind of draw the line of we're going to exploit the other team's weakness versus we're going to leverage and go to our team's strengths. So you, you made the decision, you know, we, we're just not good enough at the two ball. So we're not going to leverage that as one of the team's weaknesses. But what, how do you kind of keep that in balance of, you know, we're going straight at the other team's weakness versus no, we're going to play to our strengths and play our game and see if they can stop it. Yeah. Yeah. I wish, I wish I had a good answer here. Like, I think that's, what's great about volleyball is, is the offensive team does have an advantage, right? Like the offensive team should side out more often. And you were a guy that everybody in the gym knew you were going to get volume and it was your job to execute and the other team was going to plan for you. So like that, that battle is always going to constantly happen. But yeah, do you, do you overthink yourself sometimes? And do you think like, Oh, uh, they have a small setter. So instead of doing like a heavy right side thing we do, we want to overload position four and we want to do this. And it's like, well, are, are we diluting our best option to take advantage of what they're weak at or, or what are we training? And I think that's, that's the really tough part. So on the beach, I think our, our confidence, our execution, like, because it is such a side out game, like two on two that like a, a lot of first ball side outs, like you almost got to go strength a lot. Um, but I, I think you'd be, you'd be ignoring information you have that it could be worth two or three points, like all this data we have. Right. So uh, I don't have a perfect balance, but I think I I want our players to be confident and execute and play their style of game, but also be able to stop the other team. So yeah. Does that mean we go to our third or fourth shot because that's what they can't stop? Well, I don't know. We, we, we have teams who I don't know if they can win a world tour match with their fourth shot. Right. So where, where is that balance? That's such a good point. And 
as I'm rambling here, I don't, I don't have the answer yet. Or like what you're a coach, you're a former player. Like, what do you think? Where is the balance of like, I don't know, we're, we're an NFL team and we like to run the ball, but we're playing against the best run defense in the league. Like, what do you do? Do you go strength on strength or does one side concede? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I know when I talk to my setters, this is kind of the best way is I boil it down and, 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 and this quote applies to many things in life is it's simple, but it's so complicated. And pretty much the simple thing is, is we want to put ourselves in the position with the highest percentage to score. Oh, great. Super easy. But now does that mean our strength is giving us that highest percentage that maybe 81% side out, or if all of a sudden we exploit their weakness, does that bump us to 82%? And, you know, I think that's where the expert coaches are able to kind of, put the data away and really use their gut and, and the top players and the top teams are able to kind of be confident in those. Cause it is, it is really almost splitting hairs at that point. And it's like you said, it's, it's constant battle balancing act. Well, I think the, it was a loaded question, but I just wanted to spark that discussion. <laughs> no, it's definitely a good discussion. I think just discussing it's going to help me give the answer. Hopefully the listeners wheels are spinning too, but I just had a similar conversation when we had Nathan Jansen on the show and I was like, as a beach scout, sometimes I would struggle that, you know, this player from this country struggles over their left shoulder. But if you serve them 40 balls over their left shoulder the whole match, that you're going to rep them into comfort. Like they're elite athletes, right? So do you go at their left shoulder when it's 18-17? Do you go at it when it's 0-0 so you can build a lead? Like when do you do it? Because like that's what's so great about Nathan Jansen. He brought up, he's had a lot of these chats with like Ben Josephson is like a game plan isn't one thing and you go in and you just do that game plan. Like there has to be layers. You have to be looking for their counter. And then what are you going to do to counter that like – uh, I when I started coaching college, like we had a serving strategy and we had a side out strategy. We didn't have four layers to it. And now I look back and be like, I didn't really prepare our teams because like the other team is going to counter. You're playing against smart people over there too who are going to figure it out. Like as Nathan mentioned, if you only have one plan, you're basically teaching the other team how to beat you because you're just going to wrap them into yeah. what you want to do. So I think that's really an art of coaching that I I definitely didn't know when I was younger. It's like, okay, we've done all this pre-scouting. We've done this. Like we know they're not very good at this. But if they figure it out, what do we do next? And I didn't always have that play. And, and it's so obvious, but it, it's not obvious at the time to me. Yeah, and I think you can't un underestimate confidence. Like I know when I was starting at Western as a left side, I was a serving target. But if the first three balls I got, I made perfect passes. I was I was fine for the rest of the game, but they just, they just kept coming. So you're absolutely right. If you rep someone into... You know, they're now they're clean and they're smooth. You got to have plan B, C and D ready to pull out of your pocket. See, I always found that the art of it too. just another quick story. I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. But being on the beach crew, we were really lucky to have an awesome crew. But they they were players like it was guys like Michael Denton and Oscar Cahu and and Josh Taylor, like guys who played at the post-secondary level. So when we're in the beach tent and there's no work to be done because it's the first match of the morning and you've got everything set up. We're, we're talking about volleyball and Michael Denton told a story when he was the Barrow U of T against Waterloo, they served him the first two sets of the match and he passed lights out and they were up to nothing. And in the third set, they kept going at him and he honestly remembers his self-talk being like, why are they still doing this? This is dumb. I'm passing so well. And then he shanked a ball and then he shanked another one and another one. And all of a sudden he's in the tank and he was just rolling thinking like you've grooved me into like confidence and now I can't pass a ball and now I'm in the tank and I'm so rattled. So it's such a fine line of like, if Waterloo would have got off him, they probably would have lost the game. But because they stuck to it, they they ended up folding him up and, and risking his confidence. And I think uh, I'll never forget that because that's like the art of coaching. It's like, okay, like we're charting and he's passing and he's killing us. Do we go off? Do we come back? Like even even thanks to the show, having Jason Lockett on the show, Phil and Nick's coach in, in the U.S., 
Phil and Nick have a rule that they're never going to serve somebody the whole match. Like even if you're playing Mole and Sorum and Mole's viewed as this untouchable guy, like one of three or four balls are going to go to him because we don't feel anybody's untouchable and we don't want to rep somebody into rhythm. And I thought that was such a smart rule by one of the best teams in the world that doesn't matter who's across the net. We're going to try both. And maybe he's not on that day. Yeah, no, that's a great insight and very valuable information. Thanks for sharing, Josh. Um, So just being cognizant of time and I want to get to your your current role so i'm so uh you're working as the the speed uh the beach stats guy for the national team and then uh and then what was the next big jump for you so i think the the big jump would be um steve anderson moves on like i think he did a great job establishing the program like he tells a funny story and if anyone has him on social media that when he talked about like when's the last time you got off a flight and you're gonna win the tournament and like he was almost laughed out of the room right like that's the identity of canadian beach volleyball where People are going to tournaments and they they don't have thoughts of winning. They have thoughts of like competing or maybe getting out of the qualifier. And, and to see where the program is now is is definitely a, a huge thanks to what he's been able to establish. And, and obviously, a lot of players and coaches deserve credit too. But with with Steve moving on, um, I I get bumped up into the interim role, and I think it, it's one of those things where. Again, when I'm younger, I think when I, I had goals of being a national team coach, don't get me wrong, but it was indoor. I didn't even really know what beach was when I started coaching. But it, as soon as I got the beach bug, I, I loved it. And this was a goal of mine. But uh, I, for some reason, when I was younger, I thought, you know, when you when you get this opportunity, you're going to feel ready. And I, I didn't feel that way, to be honest. Like, hopefully a lot of players aren't listening right now. But um <laughs> Yeah, I, I felt a little exposed or whatever the proper term is like imposter syndrome where like I did so much planning in the start. I wanted to be so prepared. Like I want the players to feel like practice is organized and planned and ready to go. Like we we give a video presentation before practice twice a week. Like I want them to feel like that really applies to what we're doing in practice where like, I, I don't know. I thought when I was younger, if I ever got this opportunity, it's going to be so easy and so confident. I'm going to really deserve it where I got this gig and I was like, oh. Like I was happy for like a day and then I was like, I got to get to work. Like I'm not, I'm not ready for this. And, uh, and that kind of added to the excitement where now, now we're into March and I feel a little bit comfortable, but I still have that feeling where like being a head coach of a program is such a funny balance where like you're in this position of leadership, but you're serving the athletes. So like, how do you find the balance of like serving them, but being the authority, right? And that's, that's a balance that I haven't figured out yet, but it, it's definitely motivated me that like, when my wife goes to bed, like I'll stay up and do an extra hour, hour and a half of work or watch video just to make sure that like when Jake McNeil asked me a question of practice, like I have the answer, I have feedback. He knows that I'm invested in his development. So it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a role I take really seriously, but uh, yeah, I, I freaked out the first week. <laughs> I think it's totally fair. It's a, it was a big jump. So you're, you're settling in a little bit more now though. It sounds like. Uh, it, it's normalizing a little bit and I, I'm pretty thankful to the staff and players there that like one of the biggest challenges we have is is going through the the coaching levels here with the OVA and the NCCP is when you periodize a season you usually have a competition to work back from like if you're a club coach you're like where do we want to be at provincials and how do we work back and how does that tournament in December affect our plan like it, it's almost reverse engineering from competition really driving the periodization with where we are in the world right now, our guys, some of them don't know when their next tournament's going to be like full disclosure. Like I don't think any of our guys wanted to go to the Qatar four star. That's about to start. And I don't know where our points would have put us. Like, I think we would have been in the qualifier at best, a lot of our teams. So that, that, that wasn't really a goal to be training towards the Qatar four star. So we've organized uh, an in-house tournament just to like play against each other. 
but we're going to hype it up. Like we're going to stat it. We're like going to give game plans. Like we're going to try to treat it like it's a real tournament, even though it's like you're going to be playing on a Thursday at Downsview against each other. But at the same time, that that's making my job a little bit easier is we can peer to eyes and say, you know, this is your gap. How small can we get the window? Like here's your serving strategy. Like how many teams can we beat with this? How how flexible does it need to be? Like, where's the balance of the stats and the the action that you talked about? So it's just kind of giving us an extra shot in the arm of, of practice of like giving us meaning while still basically playing like a glorified exhibition against the team you train with every day, right? So it's I, I don't want to overhype it, but just like the added layer of, of competition and and with where we are in the world, like I think competition needs to exist. Like I really feel for the club kids right now, like. Some some regions are allowed to practice again, but without competition, like you just, I don't know, I don't get fired up the same way about practice as I do about like a chance to be across from somebody and beat up on them, right? Yeah, there's something to be said about a, a win and a loss of being on the line for sure. So th- this tournament, is it going to be streamed at all or can anyone watch? Like, let's hype it a little bit, I mean. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't. I don't know enough about streaming, to be honest, like to figure it out. I don't know if the internet's strong enough there, if we just do like... I don't know when the AVP qualifier was going on, a couple of players snuck on their phones and did it on Instagram live. And I appreciate that because I got a chance to watch the games, but uh, yeah, leave that with me. I might figure that out because you're right. I think people would be fired up, even though it's just Canada versus Canada and it's going to be Jake and Will versus Alex and Liam. Like people want to watch that. If I wasn't with the national team, I would want to watch that game. Right. So how do we, how do sure. we figure it out? But yeah, leave that with me. That's, that's a good idea. I was so focused on training and making sure we're ready, but yeah, maybe this is something we could do for the community too should uh should reach out to um everett he uh he streamed a lot of the one volleyball stuff he might be able to oh true, to true, give true. you some insight yeah but yeah like i mean i'm sure you know it as well right the uh the sports market and being able to watch volleyball in canada it's it's next to non-existent right and especially with covid uh shutting down all the OUA and CIA and uh, U sports games. Right. I'm sure there's definitely a, a market in some viewers out there that are itching to watch any kind of volleyball. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, I think maybe when I was younger, why my goal was to coach for the national team and not professionally is I, I think when I was 20 years old, I couldn't name a pro club in Europe. Like it's not that accessible, right? Where now, yeah. now I think like Dan Neely at 5-1 Volleyball is doing a good job as a Canadian, like covering pro volleyball. It's made it a little bit accessible, but I think, yeah, our, our national team is still key because that's the closest thing to home where if I don't, I, I, I'm honest with you, I can't name five clubs in the Russian league. I know there's Canadians in the league, but I don't know what team they play for, which is kind of sad as I'm saying this out loud. But yeah, I think... No, it's very tough to keep track of it all. Oh, and the time zone difference and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it's tough. So yeah, maybe some Canadian beach is the ticket to get people fired up again. For sure. I mean, uh, I love Sam Pedlow's 15-second highlight clips of their morning practices, but I'd love to see a full match so we can see some of his errors and blunders. (laughs) It is pretty heavily edited. I will give him a lot of credit that I think he's done a great job exposing our sport and building his brand. But uh, every once in a while, he'll post like a a blunder, doesn't he? Like he, he fumbles a little bit, right? Oh, I don't know. I've seen a lot of blocking highlights of them lately, so I'd love, I'd love to see some full matches. <laughs> I, I can tell you Mike and Aaron are better than they come off in the video sometimes. They're not getting blocked the full okay. practice, I can tell you that. So <laughs> that's, good. that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, so, Josh, I know we're kind of uh, hitting a, hitting that limit here. Um, is there any uh, last quick uh, things you want to say about this new role and any excitement you have with the next-gen team? Because um, as I'm sure you're well aware, we've got to end the end the story or end uh, the episode with a funny story or something volleyball's taken you. So before we get to that story, anything uh, ex- you're super excited about with the next-gen role? 
Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, well, again, thanks for for doing this. I, I think the the men's program is ready to take off. Like, I think we have a lot of good players who are super passionate. I think with me, you know, trying to find the balance of of basically a glorified art student who fell in love with numbers and video, like just trying to find the balance of like this is what we can copycat. This is what the best teams in the world are doing, and then like what's the what's the art of coaching you up so you can still play your style and win. So I'm. I'm absolutely just over the moon every day. I get to go to practice and work with these guys and it's, it's every day is not easy, but it, it's definitely exciting and fun. And, and just learning from, you know, hearing myself speak about like my time at George Brown club team Ontario, that when, when I'm in those moments, I'm always trying to take it like super serious. Cause I think that's what high performance is where I've definitely made a note of like, have more fun this time, like have more conversations, like really invest in the athletes. Like we're, we're, we're a bunch of clowns. Like every Friday we wear jerseys and it's Jersey Friday and everybody, the, the rule is you can't wear your own jersey. So now guys have got like Miami heat jerseys or this NBA Jersey or, or Jake and I found this company online called uh, oh, bench clearers where they make hockey jerseys in cuts of basketball jerseys so he's got like a seattle kraken like basketball jersey it's like amazing right so it's just i don't know they're they're a fun group to be around we take it really seriously but we also have a lot of fun and i think what i've learned over my career i, I think that's what it's all about because even talking about team ontario five years ago i don't even know who won the freaking tournament right but i know i know the relationships i made i know what practices felt like i know like what i could contribute what i learned like i think as I get a little bit older in my life and look back and I don't want to over dramatize it. I think th those are the moments you're going to remember, like winning the, the Cambrian tournament at George Brown was fun, but I probably had just as much fun on a bus ride to Ottawa with the guys. Right. So I think anyone who's coaching you thinks it's this big glamorous thing. It's always going to come back to the relationships. I think. Yeah. Sports are meant to be fun. Um, so probably the, the most important name drops of the episode is who are the, who are the athletes you're responsible for with this program then? So we have uh, Mike Plantinga and Aaron Nossbaum, and they're they're good. They're really good. They're they're usually the team who trains with Sam and Sam because Sam and Sam are our senior team in our program, but they train with the next gen team. So Mike and Aaron will go over there, and and I'm excited for Mike and Aaron to hopefully have a chance to start their season because there's there, there's a chance they could go to the Olympics. Like they're they're in the hunt if our if our country goes to a continental event. Like they're they're in the hunt, but we have a lot of other teams in the hunt as well. Like I work with Jake McNeil and his partner Will Hoey and. Uh, Alex Russell, who's been a great addition to our program, and Liam Kopp. Like, I just I, I love all our guys. I love their energy. Um, Sergey Garoski's been around the program a lot. He's got a new partner, Chris Tao, who fans would recognize from U of A and U of T. Like, they're they're great guys. And then we have Ivan Reka, who's just just this ball of potential, and he's so good, and he works so hard. And it's nice to have a Quebec guy on the team, and he plays with a partner outside the group, Simone Factor Boutin, who I know you know very well, and. Um, yeah, we just have this great group of guys that, uh, I, I feel for them cause there's no competition, but you would, you would never know it by the way they come to practice and the way they work hard that they're, they're not having the poor me's about like, what are we training for? We don't even have a tournament. Like they want to get better. They want to be coached up. Like it, it, it's a good thing going and I'm, I'm glad I get to be a part of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to see, uh, these Canadian folks make a big dent once, uh, the tournaments start rolling up and all this COVID stuff starts to get behind us. Yeah, and I'll be super uh, fanning from here for sure and taking more credit than I deserve, but it'll be fun to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, awesome. And and hopefully uh, there's a place where we can start to follow them or, or even watch this tournament. Hopefully we can get that sorted out. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. That's a good idea. Right. Yeah, so all right, Josh, let's. Uh, I'm sure you've got, after hearing hundreds of other people's uh, stories or interesting places volleyball's taken them, let's hear the, the big one that you've got lined up for us. So I thought of a couple and one's already been told on the episode when we had MC LaPointe on the show, she called me out a little bit. The first time I went to China, 
I was learning data volley, but unfortunately Chris couldn't join us. So I would set up by the side court and practice data, data volley all day and then go home and upload the files and upload the video. And like the time zone difference was a mess. But like if I had questions for Chris or whatever, try to shoot them off and hopefully have an answer when I wake up. And it was just miserable and I'm eating McDonald's and it doesn't taste the same, but sometimes it does. Like depends what you order, it tastes the same and it was just miserable. But anyways, MC the points episode covers me being pouty in China. Um, but the, the one I thought of where a lot of guys have put themselves on the line and they've been the butt of the joke. And this was probably one of my more uh, embarrassing moments that I'll share. So I, I'm the head coach of Team Ontario with uh, the h Girls program and Melissa Bartlett has the other team. And working with Melissa was amazing. And one thing we did one night for team building was uh, Brock University is where we were training. They have a, a beautiful campus, like a lot of wooded areas, a lot of parks. So she decides we're going to go to like this benched area in the middle of the woods. And she's a great storyteller. So she's telling ghost stories as like the sun's going down, it's getting dark and stuff. And in the middle of her story uh, behind where I'm sitting with the other coaches, there's two raccoons and they're like fighting basically. And that's like a big distraction. Everybody stops the story and, and they go away or whatever. But as Melissa's getting back into the story, you hear them again and there's more noises and it sounds like they're getting closer and they're being aggressive. And at one point, it just sounds like they're like all behind us. So <laughs> embarrassing as it is, I'm like at the front of the line, like I'm, I'm out of there. I'm booking it up the stairs with a bunch of like this pack of 18 year girls is like the guys are laughing at us. I found out last week that like I'm the brunt of the joke and the rest of the week, everyone's like, Josh, you were afraid. And I was like, guys, it's a wild animal. Like, of course I was afraid. And they're like, you were in a pack of like 40 people and you were running away with like the 18 year girls. And I, I found out last week when I was talking to Jeff Miller uh, about this show, I was like, Eric's going to do the show, but like, I want to ask you something. I need the details for this funny story because that's when I got picked on the whole week for being afraid of like a pack of raccoons. He's just like, you idiot. First of all, there was only two of them and they left when we got there because they're afraid of humans. That was me and Richard Eddy making those noises. That's why they felt like they were behind you. Like I was sitting beside you making those noises. So here I am like <laughs> the, the most gullible guy ever running away from raccoons who weren't even there in a pack of like teenage girls where I should have been like the calm adult being like, guys, it's okay. Like, but between the combination of Melissa telling a great like ghost story and me being afraid of wild animals, that was uh I'm blushing now as I tell this story as I'm just an absolute idiot running away from raccoons who weren't even there. But yeah, thanks to Jeff for, for letting me know that he was actually the one making the noises and I was in no harm whatsoever. But <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. Even better that he didn't tell you until years later. No, like he, they were holding the story the whole time there. I actually had to reach out to me like and just add up some details. And he's like, no, you idiot. That was Richard and I the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, this has been great, Josh, um, and I and I know I kind of mentioned this on my episode, but once again, I think uh, it's awesome what you're doing with this program, and we talked about, you know, the lack of sport coverage that volleyball gets in general in Canada, and, and this is just one step closer to, to putting it more mainstream, right? I don't think, uh, you know, similar to your George Brown College, you got to start somewhere, and hopefully this is just a, a small stepping stone for volleyball in Canada to making it onto a, a bigger and better platform. Well, thanks, man. Like I said at the start, I really appreciated it when Dallas and I started the show. It was all going to be like storytelling. And we were like, everybody's got a story. Like, it doesn't matter who we get on the show. Like, it's going to be fun. And as I mentioned, like, I was uncomfortable with the idea, but I thought, you know, I need to suck it up because I've put people in this situation. And I, I think listening back to some episodes, I don't even say my own name. Like, I try to make it about the guests so much. So 
I just want to appreciate you for, you know, acknowledging me. And it was fun to tell my story a little bit. And now I feel some empathy what the guest does because I felt like I was talking super fast and we burned through a lot of topics and I rambled. But, uh, you know, that's what makes a good sorry, passing down. keep it under an hour, eh? Oh, yeah. That's what <laughs> makes a good passing dimes episode is just talking fast, sharing information and sharing some laughs with your friends. I think that's if, if anyone can listen to this and think like I could be on passing dimes. Yes, you could send me an email and you can be on passing dimes. <laughs> Perfect. There you go. And I look forward to listening to this one on my next on my run next week, I guess. Well, thanks again, man. We'll have to get you back on so I can flip it and have you talk again. But it just shows your your character and uh, you're not alone in the volleyball community. There's so many great people. So thanks for giving me the chance and good to name drop and shout out some people who have helped me. And yeah, biggest thanks to you for this idea and, and making it happen. It was a pleasure. It was awesome. Anytime, Josh. <laughs>